We haven't been introduced yet. My name is Dave Warrens. I have the honor of serving here at Grace Fellowship Church as the Director of Missions and Mobilization. And today, I also have the privilege of opening up God's Word with us as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Um, We'll be in chapter 16, if you want to get there in your Bibles or your app. We'll be in the middle of chapter 16. And I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 14, if you guys want to follow along. Luke chapter 16, verse 14 and following. It says, The Pharisees, they were lovers of money, and they heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. That's Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. We're kind of jumping into the middle of a conversation, but for a little bit of context, for months, Jesus has been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God all across the countryside. And he started by proclaiming this wide open access to God's kingdom. And towards the end of his earthly ministry, which is, it's about where we are now, he's mostly using parables, stories, to adjust and correct these old paradigms of how God interacts with people. And he's instructing the folks who are believing, how do we live now in light of this new reality? What is life like inside the kingdom of God? And so this passage today is, it's tucked inside of a larger conversation that Jesus is already having. It's with his disciples for the most part. And he's discussing, as we saw in the previous weeks, the appropriate place and the appropriate use of resources inside the kingdom of God. But even that conversation with his disciples, that's tucked into a larger context as well, right? All the way back in chapter 15, which I think that was last year for most of us. Chapter 15, the Pharisees were grumbling about Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, as Jesus responded to that criticism by popping off right back to back to back, Three parables where he is telling the Pharisees about what God thinks and how he feels about unbelievers, those those messy sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is telling God, telling God's heart, telling the Pharisees what God feels when a sinner comes home. And then at the beginning of our chapter, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 16, he picks right back up where he started off, teaching his disciples about life inside the kingdom. And now he's rudely interrupted again by the Pharisees, except this time they're not just grumbling, right? This time they're actually mocking him. They're laughing out loud at Jesus. And we're not told exactly what they're heckling him about, but at this point, he doesn't even bother with a parable. He just fires right back with a straightforward assessment of their hearts, motives, and behaviors. And for a minute, it shuts them down, and he's allowed to get back to what he was doing originally, teaching about the kingdom. Now, I I always think context is helpful. Whenever we're reading the Bible, we want to look back and forward and try to see where are these conversations happening. But today, it's especially helpful because these verses, it would be so easy to just assume that Jesus is pulling off another, uh, you know, I'm just going to dunk on the Pharisees. 
show them up a little bit that I know the law better than they do and move on. But I don't think Jesus is doing less than that. He absolutely is. But, but I think he's doing a lot more than that, that we can be helped in our day today. I think he's giving a window into the, the prideful, selfish, hypocritical, self-deceived heart that the Pharisees had. And if we're honest, I think it's the same kind of hearts that we have today. It's the same heart I have. And so here we are just a couple of weeks out from the gospel treason series that kicked off our year in January. And God in his providence, his kindness, he's allowed and scheduled even this little heart checkup for us. It's like a follow-up visit, right, to a cardiologist. And so this morning, we're going to see him exposing the idolatrous hearts of the Pharisees. But I hope we're also going to take a look at our hearts this morning. So would you join me in praying for our hearts to be exposed through this passage as well? Father, we, we join with the psalmist David. Psalm 139, he says, Search me, God, know my heart. Try my thoughts, see if there's any grievous way inside me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And we, we would beg the same today. God, would you show us where we're out of alignment? Would you encourage us in the places that we do follow your heart? Would you show us how to love you more today? We do love you. We do trust you. We thank you for that. Amen. And our text today shows Jesus making a series of statements at the Pharisees. And sometimes that can be a little difficult to, to apply to our own lives. It's a little easier just to bandwagon, like, yeah, get them, get them, yeah. So instead of just doing that, I thought it would be helpful if maybe we, we frame this in a series of questions that Jesus is responding to. So that's how I've organized your outline today. So question one, if you can think of it like, oh, are the Pharisees using God's law for its intended purpose? Or, again, am I using it for God's intended purpose? So question one, am I using God's law for its intended purpose? And when Jesus mentions the law and the prophets in verse uh, 16, right, in chapter 16, verse 16, he's referring to what we would call the Old Testament. But back in that time, that's pretty much all of the Bible they had, right? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And for the Jewish culture, the cornerstone of that writing would have been the Ten Commandments and the laws that surround it that make those Ten Commandments applicable to their everyday life. People usually count somewhere around 600, maybe a little bit more, uh, laws in the Old Testament that governed and, and really was the foundation for all of Jewish culture at that time. Everything was built on and infused by those laws. And then on top of those 613 laws, the Pharisees added on over a thousand rules that they themselves thought would be helpful to people. They called them fence rules, right? Because their thought process on it was breaking one of any one of those 10 commandments or, or the 613 laws around that, breaking just one of them was so bad that we needed to put up these roadblocks to keep all of you wicked sinners from even coming close to breaking God's law. That sounds like a great idea, but, but really, when you start adding something that's imperfect to something that's perfect, that's not an upgrade. 
right? That's actually, that's actually bringing the quality of your original uh, content down to a human level. And, and Psalms say that God's word, God's law, it's perfect as is. So we don't need to make improvements from our own minds. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. And so right off the bat, right, they're not using God's law for its intended purpose. But it does get worse, Because the Pharisees aren't just messing with the content of God's law. They're actually twisting the motivation for obeying God's law. If you look at verse 15, verse 15 says, You are those who justify yourselves in front of men. The Pharisees don't really seem particularly interested in pleasing God so much as making themselves look good in front of whoever happens to be watching at that point. I think it's probably worth hitting pause just for today. Uh, I mean, just for a minute. Let's, Let's pause the heart check. And let's make sure we're all on the same page about this word justification. Okay, for a lot of us, maybe if you grew up in church, it's a word that you've heard for quite a long time, maybe decades. But maybe you haven't had to define that to yourself recently. And then I think there's a lot of folks that are either in our services now or watching online that... Justification is one of those words you've never really had to deal with. You didn't grow up in church, and so you're just kind of nodding along and hoping to fill it in with context. So either way, let's get on the same page for now. Justification, or justified as it's sometimes used, here's how I define it for myself when I'm reading. It's God treating me just as if I'd never disobeyed. Do you see that? Justified, just as if I'd... So it's just as if I'd never disobeyed. But it's better than that. Because it's also just as if I'd always obeyed God. That's what the Bible means when it says righteous or righteousness. A person is righteous when they've always obeyed. And when they've never disobeyed. If we look at... Pause for a second and... and Luke, let's turn over to Romans chapter 3. That's just a few pages to the right, if you're unfamiliar. Romans chapter 3. Justification really is just a, a fancy way of saying, right, God declares you righteous, just as if you'd always obeyed, just as if you'd never sinned. And it sounds awesome. It actually is awesome. It's actually really, really awesome. But somehow, you're going to have to reckon with the fact that you actually do sin. You actually have disobeyed at some point in your life. None of us are batting a thousand right now. And so how could somebody who has already screwed up, right? Somebody like us. How could somebody who has already sinned be called righteous in the sight of God? How could we be justified? I'm glad you asked. Look at Romans 3, verse 23. 3, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? That's us. We've all screwed up somehow. But 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying that even though we haven't always obeyed, even though we have already sinned, we can still be declared righteous because it's a free gift. Anyone who's been fused to Jesus through faith can have that free gift of justification. It's yours just for signing up. 
I think marriage is a, a perfect illustration of that kind of fusion. My wife, Andrea, and I, we've been married for a while, and, and I, we're obviously distinct individuals. She's out of town. I'm here. But for a lot of our daily life, we're treated as a single entity. Really, if you look at the people and the organizations that, that we interact with on a regular basis, whether it's Amazon or Costco or the library or doing our taxes, right, insurance, our calendars are even synced, Kroger cards, good grief. It's all merged, right? It's all synced up. It's all one household. We are together. It is a, is a much shorter list to say who would look at us as individuals, really, uh, from a week-to-week, day-to-day basis. And it's the same way that God looks at us when we fuse with Jesus through faith. What's his is ours. What's ours is his. And we get to be righteous because he actually is righteous. He's always obeyed. So that's justification, okay? We, we're going to stay here in Romans for just a second, but think back to the original question. Were the Pharisees using God's law for its intended purposes? No. No, they were not. They're absolutely wrong. <laughs> they were adding their own perf- imperfect rules to God's perfect law. They were twisting the motivation for obeying God's law to suit their own purposes. But what about us? Right? What about our intentions? What about our uses? We don't want to make the same mistakes the Pharisees were making. Right? We, we don't want to obey God's law just when people are watching us so that we look justified. That's, that's being justified in front of men. Right? God sees through that. He's not fooled. But he never actually intended the law to make anybody righteous anyway. If you look up at verse 20 in Romans 3. Just a a couple sentences up. Verse 20 in Romans 3 says, For by works of law, no human being is going to be justified in his sight. And again, if you skip down to verse 28, he says it a different way. For we hold that a person is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So it sounds like justification is a completely different topic from this rule-keeping conversation. And so if the law isn't designed to make us righteous or to justify us, then, then why would God even have it here? Why is it taking up over half of our Bible? To be fair, that's a question that people have been answering and dialoguing about for centuries. Smarter people than me have been devoting years of their lives to answering that question, and they've landed in some very different places. But one guy that has been very helpful to me over the years, and I think to a lot of other Christians, I think he can give us a a good head start on answering that question today. His name's John Calvin. John Calvin was a a French pastor in the early 1500s, and he saw three distinct uses for the law. Even today, I think that could be helpful as as we look through what do we do with the commands that God gives us. The first use that he saw was as a mirror. If you look back to Romans 3.20, it says, For the by works of law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so God's law is going to show us our need for a hero to come rescue us. It's going to do that by contrasting God's perfect, beautiful nature with our somewhat sad, nasty, disgusting, sinful nature. And even as justified believers, it's helpful to see that contrast. It's helpful to to acknowledge that there is a big difference between God and us. 
because that's going to serve as a springboard for most of our worship. We don't have time to unpack all of Romans today, uh, but we see that most clearly in chapter 7. When Paul says, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's acknowledging that contrast, and then it launches into worship where he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes on for some of the most worshipful and helpful passages in the entire Bible, but it starts with acknowledging that contrast. And so one way that we get to use God's law for its intended purpose is showing us our sinful hearts contrasted with God's perfect heart and law. And the second purpose that we get to see is the law serves as a a curb, right? It keeps sinful people from being as bad as they possibly could be, which is a good thing. Hopefully it would inform people's daily lives and, and serve as an objective standard for how the rest of the world should be acting. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says that this is why the law was given to the Jews in the Old Testament. It says, you should keep doing them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all of these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation, wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord is to us whenever we call on him? So it keeps people from being as sinful as they could possibly be, but it also forms a benchmark to say this is also contrasting God's people against the rest of the world. The third purpose that we would see for Scripture uh, that John Calvin shares with us, and he said is the principle, and, and I agree. I think we would say this is the primary purpose for the giving of the law to his people. It's a guide. It is a help. It points us toward our ultimate aim, pleasing God. The law tells us what he likes. It tells us what he doesn't like. He gives us insight into his preferences, his priorities. It teaches us what it's like to be in his family. And that's what Jesus was doing all along with the parables. And so I I think it, it tracks that this is how we today, as disciples of Jesus, learn to be a part of his family. For instance, I have a daughter named Penelope. She's about two and a half years old now. She's just now learning the rules and the rhythms of our family life. Right? She's starting to figure out what surfaces are okay to stand on, which ones are not okay to jump off of. Right? She's starting to hear what tone of voice means you've crossed a line somewhere, what volumes are appropriate to talk at, whether it's you know, in the bathroom or at the table or outside or who knows, two in the morning. <laughs> and we're starting to figure out right, what sounds need to be responded to immediately. I don't know if you guys have ever heard uh, a toddler starting to vomit But you find another gear, right? That's just you move faster. So we're all learning together. It's great. Most of it's trial and error. But you know what? Her ability to conform to our family standards of behavior and conduct has absolutely nothing to do with her place in our family. Let's say that again. Penelope's desire and ability to conform to our family standards has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not she belongs in our family. On her worst day, she is still my little girl. 
And in fact, it's exactly because she's my little girl that I'm going to patiently, lovingly, most days imperfectly, teach her how to be a part of our family. I think that's exactly what God intends to do with his law for us. 2 Timothy 3, some of you guys might be familiar with that. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, God's law is not what makes you a part of God's family. Only faith in the finished work of Christ can do that. But once you are daddy's little boy, once you are daddy's little girl, the law will teach you how to be a part of his family. And he's going to do it patiently, lovingly, perfectly over time. So again, we have to ask, are we using his law for its intended purpose? I think it's worth sitting in that for a little while. We're not going to do that today, but I would encourage you, ask him that. He's a good father. Question number two. Do the Pharisees change the rules to suit their strengths and preferences? Do we change the rules? If you haven't done so, let's turn back to Luke chapter 16. I don't know if your Bible does this, but my Bible has these little paragraph headings and dividers. Maybe you guys have that too. Sometimes I forget they're not part of the original text. Like Jesus' disciples didn't have those. Right? I, think, I think some of y'all are probably today years old when you realize that's not a part of the Bible, right? Which is fine. Everybody had to figure it out. So that verse in 2 Timothy where it says all scripture is God-breathed, just to be clear, he, he didn't say those headings. And I bring that up now because I think the little divider that I have between verse 17 and verse 18, it's kind of unhelpful. As in, it, it's one continuous thought, right? You shouldn't just pause there. Jesus probably didn't. He said, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's that's one continuous thought from Jesus. And the Pharisees at this point were notorious for trying to keep all of God's law perfectly. Remember, that's why they wanted to add the thousands of of extra rules to to keep that protective barrier. But, But since they were only doing it to make themselves look good in front of people who might be watching, whenever they ran into a law that they thought maybe they couldn't keep, they just changed the rules. And over time, doing that often enough, they developed a reputation of creating loopholes in the law of finding ways to wiggle in and around the law so that at the end, instead of obeying God, they ended up doing exactly what they wanted, whenever they wanted, however they wanted. And they were pretty creative about it. There were some really, really clever ones, particularly around work and the Sabbath, but there were also 
some very destructive loopholes that they started to implement into Jewish society, particularly around families and relationships. And this is what Jesus is shining a spotlight on here in verse 18. This question of divorce and remarriage was a a hot-button debate amongst the, the Pharisees of that day. There were really two camps of Pharisees. There's probably more, but at least two about this question in particular. The the more conservative Pharisees would say only adultery gives you legal grounds for divorce. And the more more progressive Pharisees would say a man could divorce his wife for any reason that she displeased him. Like, Like any reason. Some of the examples they gave were a wife over salting her husband's soup. Sounds crazy, right? Or burning his dinner. Or if the husband sees a woman more attractive than his current wife. So you can see how that kind of teaching could be incredibly destructive to families, to relationships, especially when you consider women were almost completely dependent on their husbands for their survival. And Jesus doesn't appear to be trying to settle that debate here. This is not the final word on divorce and remarriage. He speaks about it in other places. I think what Jesus is really trying to do here is remind the Pharisees the law is designed to change you, not the other way around. And he's pointing out that this this little debate that they're having about the ethics and the technicalities of divorce, it's not really about what makes God happy. That's not why they're discussing it. They're all trying to find the easiest way for them to keep feeling like they're good people while at the same time getting exactly what they want. And since God's law isn't designed to make you look like a good person, (laughs) and it's certainly not designed to get whatever your little sinful heart desires today, The only way you can keep going is by changing the rules. Unfortunately, I I think we're still guilty of doing that today. I know I am. Right? I might roll my eyes at the Pharisees. Right? These guys, come on. But I'm guilty of playing the same stupid games with God's law, of engaging in the same silly debates about who's right. The Pharisees would overemphasize the rules that they felt they were pretty good at keeping. They're pretty good at tithing. They're pretty good at ritual purity. They're they're pretty good at studying the scripture. But then they would de-emphasize or or modify the rules and the language around the stuff they didn't want to obey. For instance, divorce. I've no doubt there are multiple motivations going on. I don't know the Pharisees' hearts. God does. I'm sure some of them really did want to obey God's law as it was written. That's why they're having those debates. But I'm pretty sure at least some of them were also just looking for an upgrade on the wife that they currently had. On top of that, there also seemed to be a political motivation woven into the middle of it. The local Jewish ruler in place by the Romans that day was Herod Antipas. And guess what? Herod divorced his wife so that he could marry 
his brother's wife. It's a whole soap opera rabbit hole we don't have time to go down. If you're curious, you can read about it in Mark chapter 6 on your off time. Suffice to say, this, this debate about marriage played a significant role in John the Baptist being beheaded. And since John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, it's not surprising he would pick this particular debate to make a point. So yeah, multiple, multiple motives going on. But, but again, we're in the same boat, right? We have pieces of us that want to please God. I hope part of our heart really does want to obey his law. But, but another part of our heart, I know at least for me, still wants to just feel good about myself and get what I want. For example, poor people. The Bible has a lot to say about the marginalized, about the oppressed, about the impoverished. Some of it's hard to understand, sure, but I think for the most part, I'm just uncomfortable with the implications. And so you know what I do? I pull a page out of the Pharisee playbook and I start splitting hairs with the best of them. I start negotiating about rules and and intentions and, and words And I overemphasize the stuff that I feel I'm doing pretty good at. My theology, my work ethic, my marriage, gold star. And I start to de-emphasize. Or or worse, I start to ask these deeply theological religious questions. Like, is is it really wise to do that? Is it gospel centered? Are we really addressing the spiritual needs? That sounds great. Those are wise questions to ask. And I don't think I'm trying to be unloving or disobedient. But if I'm honest, it's an area I need to change and grow. So what about you? If the smallest piece of God's law is going to outlast our galaxy, then what part do you need to be more honest and intentional about. Remember, we can really only ask that question if we are already convinced that our performance is not the basis of our relationship with God. That's why we talked about justification first. Because Jesus' finished work on the cross forms the foundation. It opens up the opportunity for you to be daddy's little girl, for you to be daddy's little boy. And it's only from that free position that you can take an honest, open, heartfelt look at where you need to change and grow. But make no mistake, if you're changing the rules, you need to change and grow. It's why we're having this heart checkup. But if you're a part of God's family, and especially if you're a part of our church family, Grace Fellowship, I can promise you two things. Number one, you're never going to have to be afraid of an honest diagnosis. God's patient, He's kind. He's gentle with his kids in a way that the best dad on earth could never be. 
The second promise is you're never going to have to face that change alone. Nobody here has it all figured out. We are all in need of change. So as we wrap up the heart checkup this week, I want to use the final question in your outline to help us take some next steps. We don't ever want to spend too much time looking inward. It's like driving. You have to glance down at your dashboard occasionally. Check the speed, watch the GPS, adjust the tape over your check engine light. You have to do those things. And you need to look in your mirrors. Like crazy things happen around you. So you need to have that spatial awareness. But if that's where most of your attention is going, friends, that is not a safe way to drive. And the Christian life is similar. The normal Christian life cannot be lived looking inward. And so the final question is going to be, are you excited about what God is excited about? God is a real person. He has feelings, thoughts. Do you know them? I think that question of your personal excitement reflecting his personal excitement, it serves two purposes. First, it helps us see where our hearts might not be in sync with his. We may be out of alignment with his feelings and thoughts. But secondly, it gives us a place to start. It gives us that first next step. But let's answer it for the, for the Pharisees first, right, before we get to us. Let's, I think we know where it's going, but it's worth checking out. Luke, Luke chapter 16, verse 15, it says, and he, this is Jesus again, talking to the Pharisees. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in front of men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men, it's an abomination to God. And the law and the prophets were until John, but since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. So yeah, the Pharisees missed it. They missed it as far as you could possibly get. It's not like they were even aiming at the right target, right? At least you could forgive them. Like, oh, we're aiming at the right thing, but it went just a little left. No, I mean, they were aiming at the wrong target and they ended up missing that one too, which is just sad. Instead of being excited about what God is excited about, they were celebrating the kinds of things that made him sad and maybe even a little sick to his stomach. No surprise, right? They were instrumental in killing the only son of God. So it's, it's, it figures that they would be on different pages about what to celebrate. But, but again, what about us, right? Where are we any different? I'd like to think we're at least aiming at the right targets, but to know what God's really excited about, I think it's, it's, again, necessary to zoom out just a little bit, get a little bit of context, and remember that this conversation that he's having with the Pharisees is inside of a larger conversation he's having in public. He's not just tucked away in a coffee shop having this really intense conversation with two guys. Right, this is in the middle of a crowd. Chapter 15, verse 1 says he's surrounded by these sinners, the tax collectors. And that's when the Pharisees start to grumble and and Jesus corrects them with those three parables. But remember where he lands those three parables? The three parables that that he tells to the Pharisees, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And when that lost thing gets found, what happens? The person looking begins to celebrate. 
And not just celebrate themselves, demanding that everybody around them join in on the party. Turn back, look look at Luke 15, real quick. Luke 15, verses 7 and 10. Verse 7, he says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. He says it again in verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in front of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But I think it's the dad. I think the dad nails it better than anybody. At the end of Luke 15, Luke 15, verse 32, the dad says it was fitting to celebrate. I think the NIV says we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. One brother came back and so we have to party. In fact, the dad starts immediately yelling for everybody to join in on the party. And right after he teaches those parables to the Pharisees, Jesus teaches his disciples about their their resources and their money. And he says, at the end of the day, make sure there are people partying with you when you get to heaven. And after he's done dunking on the Pharisees in this little passage, he goes on to another uh, parable, which, spoiler alert, it's all about the eternal joy that's available to us depending on our faith. And so it sounds to me that God is way more concerned with the eternal than the earthly. And he is way more excited about one sinner coming home safe and sound than what anybody looks like or if they have their lives together. God is that dad at the end of Luke 15. He is that father that is so excited about a sinner coming home back into his family that he's willing to put aside all of the normal, polite society functions to look ridiculous. And he's doing that for us, knowing that the only way, the only way that we could even hope to be righteous is by fusing with him through faith. And the Pharisees are are so concerned with looking good and being right that they couldn't celebrate. They wouldn't celebrate all of these messy, sinful tax collectors that are just stampeding past them into the kingdom. But what about us? Do you think God has changed what he's excited about since this passage? I submit that God is still that overjoyed dad who's welcoming home messy, smelly, undeserving sons and daughters and yelling at the staff to crank up the music and get the party started. So as we close, I want to leave you a couple of ways that I think we as a church family could start to get excited about the things that God is already excited about and has been for quite a while. Number one, I think we can look for repentance. God celebrates when sinners repent, and so should we. And that includes you. 
When you repent, you make your father happy. You can celebrate. Number two, we can actually open up a few newsletters. I know over, like, email is so exhausting and overwhelming. But the newsletters our ministries and missionaries send out to us, it can be a helpful tool if you're needing a jump start to get into the celebration mode. They tell some fantastic stories about what God's doing and who he is saving. You don't have to open all of them. I would just pick one or two and commit to celebrating with those partners for a season. You can start praying. Number three, you can start praying for the lost people that God has in your life today. He's put lost people in need of repentance all around you. You can start praying now. Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll actually get into a persistent prayer, but you can get a head start. You can start asking God to give you something to celebrate as he saves the people around you. And finally, last week, Pastor Brad mentioned a great way to grow your own celebration is by investing more into the work of ministry. That could be giving, but, but it could also be praying. It could be using your time and your talent right, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom around the world to lost people so that heaven will rejoice as God saves some. I personally believe that we grossly underestimate how enthusiastically happy our Heavenly Father is. But my prayer is we won't underestimate that for long. Would you join me in praying for that today? Father, we love that you save sinners. We are so thankful that you saved us. And we want You, God, we want you to have a lot to celebrate about. I thank you that you are committed to your own joy and that we get to be a part of it, that what's yours is ours. We love you. Would you help us? Would you show us where to change and would you help us do it? It's because of your son and for his reputation we ask it. Amen.